Hi, everybody. I'm Ralph Ben Murky. Welcome to Not That Kind of Rabbi. Uh, about every two weeks, we appear in the podcastosphere. That's not really a word. But nonetheless, I've enjoyed being with you for so many interesting conversations with different people, uh, all really grounded in the idea of, you know, what brings us to who we are and what, you know, what's the spiritual aspect of what we do as opposed to just the material aspect, which is what we tend to concentrate on in life. And, you know, life's too short for that. Uh, I've got a book out called Not That Kind of Rabbi. No, it's not called that. It's... <laughs> I don't think I could do that. I, I have a, a book called I Thought He Was Dead. Um, and it's, a, it's, a, it's been a pleasure to write. It's been very interesting to put it out in the world. It's available online on Amazon or Indigo. It's also available if you order it through your local bookstore, which I would suggest to you as well. Uh, but writing I Thought He Was Dead was really enjoyable experience for me. And having it out in the world and people talking about the things they talk about in the book um, has really been an eye opener because I don't come from writing books and then talking about them publicly. So uh, it's a new experience and I love new experiences. So I'm happy to, to have done it. Uh, and I'm learning a lot from people that uh, one of the uh, themes of the book is uh, ageism and uh, moving yourself from uh, aging to saging and how to, you know, make meaning in life as you enter the autumn of your life. And a lot of people really resonating with that particular message. And other people just find it part of the book that they really, that speaks to them. So it's wonderful. And I'm grateful for anyone who is uh, purchasing the book. Um, you don't write books in Canada to get rich. You, you write them because you need to and you want to say things. So uh, I'm very happy to do that. Um, it's an interesting time we're sort of on this nexus point of what is tomorrow. Uh, the COP26 climate conversation is going on right now. And the reality that underpins these people coming together, that the most we could possibly tolerate with a fair amount of damage to the planet we live on is a rise in temperature of 1.5 degrees Celsius. We are now firmly headed to 2.7 degrees Celsius, uh, almost double the amount that we could tolerate uh, in our present situation of extreme weather. And yet it doesn't, I don't feel confident. I don't think it's easy for people to imagine a future that's not like their present. And in the developed, so-called developed world, it's, Spending 75 to 100 years stoking the desire machine and then asking people to stop desiring everything they see. And I don't know if we can just do that cold turkey, but I do know that if we don't, uh, I was interviewing a rabbi uh, for a, a men's retreat I do every year, a Jewish men's retreat in in Connecticut, part of an organization I've been part of called MenchWorks. And I was interviewing Rabbi uh, Mordechai Liebling about activism. And I asked him, you know, what, why won't people do something about this? And he said, because they haven't stopped long enough to hear the earth crying. And I just thought that was such a powerful image for me. Um, if you saw a child sitting in a, 
anywhere with no one around them just crying, your first impulse would be to take care of them, to do something to protect them. And when he said, if we could just hear the earth crying, it was powerful and I appreciated it. So that's what I wanted to sort of think about uh, in the next little while. Uh, by the way, if you're uh, interested in supporting this podcast, that we do have a Patreon account, which is a way of paying a little bit every, every month to uh, be part of the family. And it's uh, patreon.com slash NTKR, which kind of stands for not that kind of rabbi without the O, NTKR. Uh, so if you're interested, you can uh, donate there and support what we do. Really would appreciate it. So that's enough about the plugs. Uh, I want to introduce my guest, so I think I will. And she can appear suddenly and interestingly if she just clicks her camera icon bottom left of her screen. And if she can't, she'll call her son and he'll do it for her. Um, Nettie? Have you just. Yes, Ralph. Have you, can you click your camera? camera icon on the bottom left yeah nothing's happening i'm gonna call well, my yeah you'll see a microphone and a camera icon in the bottom left of a zoom screen if you just click on the st what says stop video it'll become video Are we getting there? Yeah, he's on his way. Here he comes. I pressed the lower left. Okay, he pressed stop video. We got it. Here I am. There you are. All <laughs> right. So I want to introduce my guest. I, I have to be formal about it, but We've known each other since high school, so I'll, I'll try to be formal without images in my head of going to parties. And Nettie was very interesting at parties. She, she was uh, speaking truth to power in the middle of parties. <laughs> and the rest of us were just like, can we just hang out? Can we just, <laughs> are those my Greb Kodiaks or somebody else's? I, I don't know who she was I'm looking at. Um, so uh, Nettie, in the meantime, has become a foodie extraordinaire in the vegetarian world. Uh, what are some of these books? Nettie's Vegetarian Kitchen, New Vegetarian Basics, The Complete Idiot's Guide to Being Vegetarian in Canada. She also co-authored Everyday Flexitarian, Flex Appeal and Nourish. Nettie lives in Toronto with her husband, who I also went to school with, Jim. Hi, Nettie, how are you? Fine, thank you. Good. I wanted to talk about what role food over your life, not just, you know, at a certain point where you started writing books about it, what role has food played in your life? Food is essential. Uh, I also think it's part of my spiritual dimension. But when I think about food, I also think about how is it grown? How is it sold? How is it distributed? Because I think farmers and producers are undervalued and underrated. Uh, 
And one of the reasons I look at the systems behind how food is sold and how it's grown is I think that will also affect my body as I eat it. And so I think there's a direct connection between the earth and between our purchasing power. I was on the Fair Trade Board of Canada for many years, and I got to travel and I got to meet the people who not only grew the food, but organized people into fair trade cooperatives. And I was very impressed with what the fair trade movement was doing in terms of providing not just a living wage for people, but a very good standard of living that enabled the farmers to decide how they wanted to spend the money and how they wanted to lead their lives. So at the beginning, you said food for you is spiritual. How do you, what do you mean by that? I, I like to bless my food before I eat it because I like to think of, well, where did this come from? Was it lovingly planted and harvested or is it from a mass produced farm where they're using a lot of chemicals? And I think that my mood, my uh, rate of activity, it all depends upon what I've eaten and how well I've, I've digested the food that I've eaten. Uh, I teach a lot of cooking classes and it's so unfortunate that so many people that come to my classes aren't well. And a lot of their ailments are of a digestive nature. And, you know, a lot of people have food sensitivities, food allergies, whether it be uh, an intolerance to gluten or to dairy, and they have to find their way because I think a lot of people are addicted to salt and sugar. And so they have to find other ways to feed themselves and at the same time, enjoy their food, find they have to almost find a compromise with their taste buds. I think that taste is the last arena of prejudice. When you ask someone or someone will say to you, you know what, I don't like the way that tastes. We all back off. We're horrified. But what about tackling people about that and asking them, well, what is it that you don't like? I mean, providing it's been properly prepared. Right. right. And, and so many people have, I guess, negative memories from their childhood associated with food. Um, when I was younger, I would never eat kasha, you know, buckwheat groats. And now I do, but I didn't associate a good food memory with them because all my mother did was add water. She didn't toast them. She didn't add an egg. She didn't add any spices. And so I think a lot of people need to have a truce with their taste buds and they have to open their minds and say, what is aquafaba? Uh, you know, what is, uh, what are sesame seeds? And they have to find recipes that don't take a lot of time, that aren't too expensive and expand their culinary horizons. And at the same time, buy ingredients that have been raised well. So there's an, obviously the, the ethics of food is a, a major part of you when did that really start for you when did you because you know we all grew up just eating whatever was in the kitchen and that was that when did you sort of start to realize I have to be conscious about eating and I have to be eth ethical about the food it, it was when I was in my family sukkah 
because it was adorned with fruits and vegetables. And we had a thatched hut and I could see the stars. And I thought to myself, why don't we eat this way more often? Because a lot of the Jewish holidays celebrate grains, celebrate fruits and vegetables. And I decided I didn't want to eat meat at a young age. My parents kept a kosher home and my mother was just beside herself. Uh, When I became vegetarian around 16, she didn't know what to feed me. And so what I had to do was I had to educate myself. Uh, Not that my mother didn't try and not that she wasn't a good cook, but the fact that I wouldn't eat all the meat that she prepared. And let's face it, especially when it comes to Shabbat and the holidays, Judaism can be very meat centric. Mm. So when I finished high school, uh, I traveled around the world for two years and I got my start in Israel. I was on a kibbutz, uh, Karim Shalom, Vineyards of Peace. And I worked in the kitchen as a vegetarian chef. And it was wonderful to be in such a supportive environment. That's beautiful. So interesting how we get to where we, we, we're going. Well, we don't even know we're getting to where we're going, right? You... That's so true. I went to a United Synagogue Day School, so I had grade eight Hebrew. Mm, that but helps. It... <laughs> well, yeah, no, because there were, I had book Hebrew where you just learned how to pray. So I got to Israel and I couldn't say, could you please pass the uh, the kasha? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, like, I don't know how to do this. This is conversational stuff. So I'm a vegetarian as well. Uh, and that story of your mother, my mother uh, of blessed memory, she she had uh, that moment of when I said, Ma, I, I, I'm, I'm a vegetarian. And all she could think is you're going to starve to death. <laughs> like, what are you possibly going to eat? She said, staring at a plate of sliced salami. You know, <laughs> I just said, well. I'm not exactly dying here. I'm not dwindling away. But to get her head around it was almost impossible because, you know, there's a few interesting things about meat. One of them, uh, I was watching a documentary last night, actually, and meat and, and masculinity that, you know, it is associated for men with open fires and meat. All of a sudden, they're chefs, right? If the barbecue starts and there's meat to throw on it, get out of my way. I know what I'm doing. But... Oddly, that same meat will end up, many people, giving them vascular issues and coronary artery disease, uh, leading in in many cases to uh, uh, erectile dysfunction because you've lost your blood flow, right? So there you are, ironically, thinking if I eat meat, I'm a real man, and then thinking, "Uh uh-oh, I'm having a problem. So I it's all about a balance. When, yeah. when I was in Brazil visiting the Fairtrade Coffee Co-op, they had killed a goat in our honor. <laughs> and I explained that I'm vegetarian and I don't eat meat. So then they had made some cheese from the goat milk and they had used rennet as a coagulating agent to make the curd. And I thought to myself, I can't insult them anymore. Right. Like I normally wouldn't eat that, but you know, Kiddusha Bait, I didn't want to insult them. Right. And I wanted to show that I appreciated all their hard work. So sometimes you find yourselves in situations where you wouldn't normally do something, but you do it because the situation requires it. Absolutely. And I find I find that 
for a lot of people who eat meat, they put themselves in a corner. Uh, you wouldn't believe how insulting people are to me when they hear I'm vegetarian or I've chosen to be vegetarian. Like they, they say, well, I couldn't live without meat. And I go, good for you. Like, you know, <laughs> are you here to learn or are you here to tell me why you can't do something? And, and also, when you look at how people spend their money, because fair trade ingredients are more expensive than your ordinary conventional ingredients, yet people go to a liquor store and spend a lot of money on their craft beers or, you know, their good yeah, quality yeah. wines. And I'm not saying that people shouldn't do that. But when you start looking at what people spend money on, you enter into an entirely different arena. And we all appreciate good quality food and good quality ingredients. And now it's time to spend a little more money on that. Okay, but that's an interesting point. And, and I remember um, when I was still living in Toronto, going to Witchwood Barns to their market when it started up. And it was lovely to be around all, uh, so many people and a sense of community and people were playing music outside. And then I looked around at the wonderful offerings and the organic this and, you know, fair trade that. And I realized that I was looking at a whole group of people who were white, university educated, and at the minimum middle class. That no one who who came from what I came from, a working class family, was going to walk into this market and buy, uh, you know, um, locally sourced trout. It wasn't going to happen because it was just way too expensive. And it was like the first time I went to the Big Carrot when it opened in Toronto. And, you know, we went and we bought groceries for four, two kids and two adults. And this is like 30 years ago or more. And at the time, that bill was $300. Now, that was just like, okay, I can never do this again. I can only pick and choose the occasional thing that I can have. But how do we do the right thing in terms of food? Because a lot of us know what the right thing is, and yet not say, I don't have the money for that. How, how do we you find a to, way? You have to strike a balance. So for instance, what are the staples you use in your home? How about olive oil, mm. cocoa, mm. Uh, chocolate, tea, coffee? Those are staples and you, those are fair trade as well. You don't have to, uh, when I talk about fair trade, you don't have to break the bank. You can also get in touch with people that distribute fair trade products and you can buy them wholesale. It's a bit of work, but you can get a few people together, buy a case of this, buy a case of that. I was a member of a food co-op with the Ontario Natural Food Co-op, and that's how we bought organic. We bought in bulk and we split it. It got delivered to someone's home. But a lot of ordinary stores, a lot of supermarkets sell a lot of fair trade products, and they're quite competitive. I was like so pleased when I was teaching cooking classes at major supermarkets to be able to use fair trade cooking ingredients in my classes. And they're also very, very good quality. And I think as a chef, that's very important to take into account. So if you look at a bottle of olive oil, it should, depending on how often you cook, maybe it should be great for a month. And a good quality of fair trade olive oil is in between 12 and $14. I don't think that breaks the bank. 
And when you look at your cocoa and you look at your coffee, they're not extremely expensive. And a lot of people like to buy organic ingredients in that vein also. But you can also buy fair trade bananas, and they're also very, very affordable. I really respect budgets, and I understand that there's only so much disposable income to go to ingredients also. So maybe if you only have one or two fair trade ingredients in your pantry and slowly expand. Right. Uh, like a good example is muscovita sugar. I love it. It has molasses. It's very flavorful, but it's seven to nine dollars for a kilo, whereas most people can just go buy some refined sugar for under two. I understand and take into account how expensive ingredients are, but if you want to help the planet, if you want to ensure that people are being paid a living wage for the work that they do, you take into account the fair trade designation or the fair for life designation that I talk about in my book. Yeah. What it does, it raises the standard of living. It allows people to dig wells. It allows people to have homes. Now, you know, their homes may be a, a tin roof, but their homes are whatever they choose and whatever suitable for their climate at the same time. And I think that fair trade is a wonderful way for young people to get involved. Uh, we have, there's a program with Fair Trade Canada. It's called the Fair Trade Ambassador. And you talk about fair trade and you talk about its goals. And I think it's really empowering for people to be able to be part of a movement that does so much good and allows people to have a better standard of living than they normally would. Like with fair trade, you're not affected by what the world price of an ingredient is. If it crashes, the amount of money you earn remains constant. And it also empowers women. Women are in power, uh, in positions of power, and they also don't use chemicals and pesticides. Well, they could never afford to, but they're allowed to grow the food the way they have grown it. The big problem with fair trade is a lot of the young people don't want to be farmers anymore because it's such hard backbreaking labor and a lot of people are living for this leaving for the cities. Yeah, well that <clears throat> that's a problem all over the world and with climate change. <clears throat> there's also another factor which is what used to be good arable land in many places is becoming uh, not usable like the you know there's people who used to grow rice uh, and uh, good rice, and and they can't. The the water has dried up. The droughts in 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 Madagascar and places like that. They just it's just broken clay now. There's no water there. You you can't start a patty. So that's going to be another factor, and it's going to drive up the price of all foods for all people. Um, I'm talking with Nettie Cronish. We're talking fair trade. We're talking, you know, it's not just food. It's a process and you're at the end result of it, enjoying it. You know, the fast food business, my, uh, my brother's brother-in-law was, <laughs> was a food chemist. And he said, look, it's all mouthfeel. And I said, what's mouthfeel? And he said, you know, if you bite into a bacon double cheeseburger, I said, well, I don't, but okay. He said, well, it feels great because you have sugar, salt, and fat all in one beautiful little uh, event and your body is convinced it's going to starve to death 
somewhere deep inside your reptilian brain. So when you eat this stuff, <laughs> it makes you go, I'm safe. I'm, it, that's why they call it comfort food, right? Because it, it's got lots of fat, lots of sugar, lots of salt, you know. Uh, and many of us were brought up that way. And fast food works that way. The good news, I guess, because it's still processed, is that in fast food, they're at least trying to insert plant-based foods into what people are eating. So it's part of it. I wanted to talk with the food. Oh, I'd stop you right there. Because I have have approached many a company about their plant-based ingredients. (laughs) The way you're saying that. (laughs) Process is not a good process. They use Because they use chemicals to isolate the protein in the ingredient often with soybeans. Mm. And so you may be getting a plant-based ingredient, but it's not a good quality plant-based ingredient. Do you remember coffee and when decaf coffee first emerged? Mm. So they used a chemical to extract the caffeine. Then the Swiss came along and they used steam. So what we need to do is we need to find better ways to extract protein from ingredients to allow them to be good quality plant-based ingredients. You look at the label on a lot of these products, you can't pronounce half of the ingredients because they add stabilizers for a longer shelf life. You can't have it both ways. You can't have good quality food that lasts seven, eight months in your freezer. I work with so many dietitians and they've explained to me not just food chemistry, but how food is prolonged in terms of its shelf life or its freezer life. And I also think we have to come to terms, not necessarily with our laziness, but if we want to be healthy, it's mind, body, stomach, and it takes work and you have to be consistent. And you know, a lot of people get ingredients delivered and they cook them at home, gazinta height, whatever you have to do to get a good meal on the table. But you have to plan what you want to eat. It's not sexy. It's time consuming. You have to make sure you have the ingredients. But this is called being an adult and this is called being a grown up. See, this, and- is, this is the netty I went to high school with. <laughs> so we'd be hanging out. Music's playing. Somebody would do something that was not quite They'd light a cigarette. Yeah. And Nettie would just turn on heel and go, what do you think you're doing? And it was just like, wow, that cronish, she's she's on it. <laughs> no, but, you know, my kids aren't vegetarian. That's really? why I flexitarian cookbooks. Well, my daughter, Mackenzie, um, her boyfriend's vegan. So she's more or less vegetarian. They're on the West Coast and, you know, grad school programs. But no, my boys, they revolted. They were right. sneaking meat. So I had to write, I wrote these two flexitarian cookbooks and I lost my membership in every vegetarian association I was a member of. Wow. I was banned from the vegetarian food fair. Now I'm still vegetarian and I would never do something non-vegetarian at the food fair, but I really got a lot of backlash. So orthodoxy, and you talked about moderation before, but orthodoxy, even in food movements, is turning a lot of people off. So if I'm a vegetarian and somebody says, well, that's not good enough, you have to be a vegan. then I feel like, oh, a little deflated. I, I was trying to do, you know, a, a big reason I'm a vegetarian isn't just my personal health, it's the global mm-hmm. environment, right? 
But they're like, no, you're still harming animals. And I'm like, oh, God, I still like cheese. All right, I'm going to put this up (laughs) so people can see it. Right. So there's Nettie's newest book. All right. The sushi's made with coconut milk. And there are chickpeas roasted in the oven with kale at the bottom. (laughs) The hit. (laughs) All right. So my wife's already uh, bookmarked. As soon as the book came, she grabbed it from me and just five, so. five recipes. We did the quinoa bowl last night. It was fantastic. What color quinoa did you use? I don't know. Ask her. I just <laughs> ate it. I just, I just work here. Uh, there's a parsnip soup she wants to make. and Oh, her- I love parsnips with the green apples. Yes. Peanut butter chocolate chip cookies. That's going to be the rule. Use crunchy. All right. Let's talk about an issue. You suggest a fair trade olive oil in this book. That uh, zaytun, right? It's a zaytun. So this- zaytun, and this is also uh, Kanaan is the other fair trade label. Okay, oh. so these are uh, done in the occupied territories. Yeah, outside Janine. Okay, so so I've bought this kind of uh, olive oil in the past. It's not cheap that you don't just use it to, you know, hey, I'll throw that in the frying pan, see how things go. But it was quite delicious. What happened when you put that into this book? What happens to you uh, as a Jewish person using a a Palestinian olive oil? Well, uh, you know, I have a lot of relatives. My parents are each the youngest of eight. And when people say, what are you doing? And I say, well, I've got this fair trade ingredient cookbook. And my favorite chapter is my Palestinian olive oil chapter. There's this collective holding of the breath. And people start asking me the most bizarre questions. They ask me, are they pro-Israel? Are they terrorists? They Do they know you're Jewish? And I'm thinking, I want to talk to you about the recipes. These people have been living here for 400 years. They're families that formed a cooperative and they're quite successful. And instead of celebrating what they're doing, I just get asked about what their politics are. It's it's a very big role reversal because I like to think I'm quite political, but now my politics are being put under the microscope in a very negative way. And I, in the book, um, I interview the workers co-op or the farmers, and I ask them all the same 12 questions. I want a bit of history, how long you've been around, what, what's your yield, uh, what are advantages and disadvantages of being part of fair trade. And the fact that I'm Jewish didn't, didn't come up. There was no anti-Israel sentiment at all. And I'm just amazed at this knee-jerk reaction I get from the most liberal-minded Jewish people I know, and I don't understand it. Well, I don't know if I understand it, but I've seen it. Um, The idea that this is an us versus them world, a binary world where you're on one side and the others are on another side. And not a lot of people are trying to look for the common universal humanity of who we are, the sacred piece of every person. They don't, they don't look into the heart. They look into the, uh, the mind. And uh, it, it's either you're going to win or I'm going to win. And I think around Israel, for a lot of Jewish people, like you said, liberal-minded, you would think. So all kinds of policies 
that are here and progressive, they go, yeah, oh yeah, I believe in all that stuff. But when you say Israel, they kind of, it turns their head because the, the survival piece comes in that Israel is supposed to be about the survival of Jewish people, that the last refuge, that the place they go to, and that they're under attack, and that the Holocaust happened, and all of the post-generational trauma comes up for people. And then I think it just blurts out of them like, hey, what do you, what do you mean? What do you, are you encouraging these people? Are they going to hurt us? And, and it becomes quite <laughs> primal. Become, it's not a nuanced conversation with beautiful things in it about no one's going to stop and go, what's it taste like that olive oil so that mm -hmm. you can go oh well actually it tastes great that's why i like it right but <clears throat> i try to be forgiving of that but i don't want to yield to that i do oh well you're right i should never have you know mentioned that it's really good and that these people uh, it's like when you see a um, footage of uh, olive groves in uh, the occupied territories being ripped up as a collective punishment for an action and you just think those are 300 year old olive trees. What are you doing? Right. So mm -hmm. you can see how this gets everybody going. So. Oh, it does. And then I also have the opposite side where I, I talk to people who are so radical. Yeah. That it, they don't make any sense either. And I don't want to be put in a position where I have to d defend anybody. I want the ingredients to speak for themselves. And I also think tikkun olam as Jewish people, you know, our philosophical beliefs and the way we lead our lives, it's not in isolation. It should apply to everything that we do. So tikkun olam for those who aren't Jewish is the repair of the world. But it's, I'm just starting a new book, actually. No, I'm not writing it, I'm reading it. Um, that was triggered in me by, <clears throat> I do spiritual counseling work with people. And some of them are all about the activism and the spiritual piece is tikkun olam. I, you know, we want to repair the world. <clears throat> and what I've learned about myself is first you have to do what we would call tikkun hanefesh repair of your soul because if you're not coming from a clean place in you then you're bringing all that baggage into your fight for what you see is right which is why you'll see faces contorted in anger instead of arms reaching out in love because they found something they can attach to that will allow them to vent the dark part of themselves too so tikkun nefesh the repair of the soul is if not concurrent with repair of the world should come first, but let me get my house together so that I can come to you with a good heart to talk about these things. And if I did that, I think if I was one of those people, maybe when you said Palestinian, they wouldn't go click. <laughs> you know, danger. Will Robinson, they would just go, Oh, okay. So What's it like? And tell me about the people you've met who make this, this oil, right? So also, olive oil is very complex. Its flavors are reflected by the soil it grows in, you know, so you get a menthol taste if it's near an evergreen forest. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and also it, a lot of olive oils are blends. When they're harvested, how you know, the pressing and the, is it done manually? Uh, there's just so many factors to take into account. And, and the bottles also shouldn't be clear glass because you don't want sunlight or heat 
to affect it. And sometimes you've got to put your olive oil in the fridge once you've opened it, and then you have to take it out the next day and wait until you know it's not coagulated so you can get your precious two tablespoons or whatever mm. so it, it takes a bit of work and and also some olive oils are best just for salad dressings others are best to cook with right. and you realize you can't go above 425 degrees with olive oil and if you're going to saute with it you have to heat it up first so you have to be at the stove and you have to pay attention and what kind of pot or pan are you using if you're not using good quality then it'll burn even more easily so there are a lot of factors to take into account but the people in my book I have some wonderful pictures of people manually harvesting the olive oil, sitting around together and having a gab. I have a picture of a family and they look so happy together and they're, they're people. And I think that's what we have to remember. I mean, um, my section on coconut milk, I deal with Sri Lankan families. Uh, Chaz Organics is a great company. They're out of Montreal and they also have a line of spices. And so this, is humanity. These involve people working together. They're related. Uh, they employ a lot of people and they're paid a very good wage for the work that they do. Uh, I mean, you know, of course it could always be better, but it's a very good wage that allows them to sustain their communities, allows them to have health care. As I said, dig wells have an infrastructure, a future for their kids. And I think that's so important. Uh, in my sugar chapter, uh, they're, they're in Paraguay and the fair trade farmers earned enough money so they could set up their own refinery for refining sugarcane. So they didn't have to schlep it 80 miles down the block. And that's what it's about. It's about building your infrastructure and allowing people to make decisions on how they wanna grow their business and how they wanna live. And I think that's really important to support. It's so so interesting that like when you talk about it, the, the mindfulness as it were, that, that is part of the entire process, everything down to the frying pan, um, and yet I think of, you know, the average person who just food, I, I've said it, I've been in the kitchen, you know, I've been feeding children uh, forever, <laughs> for 35 years, you know, one way or another, they're still in the house. And, you know, I just, I turn to my wife and I just say, I'm so tired of food, like, because the question every day is, what are we going to eat? What's for dinner? I don't care anymore. I'm just tired of making food. So I understand how people just go, just whatever, just just put something in the oven and heat it up. But then when I listen to you, I remember the art of it, the spirit of it, the the intentionality of it and the connectiveness of it. And it, it just sort of makes me realize, oh, okay, wait a minute. But as you said, you've got a plan to eat properly. You, you, you've got to decide I, these four things we're going to do this week, which means I have to make sure I'm, when I'm at the store, I get them. But then I look at what we do, the way we shop for food here. I remember I was visiting friends in Amsterdam and went into their kitchen and I'm looking for their fridge. <clears throat> and I'm like, where's your fridge? And he points down under the counter and there's this little fridge. I said, that's it? <laughs> he said, yeah. I said, wow, that's crazy. And he goes, no, no, here you buy your food on your way home from work and then you make meals. 
in France, they had a, a, a kind of mini revolution when the supermarkets opened because they were huge. And then I go to my own store and I have a shopping cart that you could fit a color TV and $300 worth of food into just to shop for some food. And 30% of it goes to waste in the one appliance in the house that uses the most energy. But you see, we're a condiment society. Ooh. I mean, how many kinds of hot sauces do you have in your fridge or teriyaki? Uh, I mean, I've got five kinds of oils in my fridge. You know, right. I have I use grapeseed. Uh, I've got two kinds of olive oil. I have peanut. I have toasted sesame. And I do use them, but they do take up space. Right. And a lot of condiments save time. So you don't have to make dressings from scratch all the time. Yeah, but that's not what rots. What rots in the fridge is half the produce that got pushed to the back because you can't see it Well, anymore. that's another story. Yes, it's a bad story. <laughs> Wasting away. What is it about, like when people take this book, I'm assuming you're, you're not assuming that every one of them is a vegetarian, but a lentil pistachio burger. Right. That, that would scare the hell out of me. Because I've never made it, not because of anything else. You know, I, I think you're at mushroom tart with brown rice crust. You know, first of all, the pictures are fantastic. Oh, I know. Mike McCall is a fabulous food photographer. And Gina St. Germain, my food stylist, is a personal friend. And and we used a lot of my Port Marion dishes, but I teach these cooking courses. Right. I'm in major supermarkets before COVID that is. And all the recipes fit on one page and they're not difficult. The problem with something like brown rice is that it takes 40 minutes to cook. Right. Right. And and you don't pressure cook something like brown rice because it takes 10 minutes to reach, you know, your desired pressure level and then 10 minutes to fall. So once again, if being organized and I'm a general in the kitchen, I cook my brown rice for the week on Monday. And then you also have to have at least three uses for a particular ingredient so it doesn't get thrown out. Okay, so I have some... Uh... Uh, black rice in the fridge right now and it's been two days and my wife said you got to put this away what do i do to make sure this doesn't get dried out in the freezer and not worth eating and chewy and awful well if you are going to freeze it i'd add some vegetable stock to it oh okay how much just a, a, a well touch? how much rice do you have do well you have let's a say let's say it's a container about that big yeah about... i'd add three quarters of a cup of veg stock to it in a container Okay. And I'd leave it in the fridge for about an hour so it can start absorbing it. And then when you take it out of the freezer, you can put it in a fry pan and heat it up and it will have some flavor and you don't have to use a lot of oil. Beautiful. Organic merengue, as we say in my Spanish Moroccan home, organic merengue with aquafaba. What is aquafaba? Oh, I love aquafaba. This is, is why you need a freezer. It's the liquid in the chickpea can. Wow. Seriously. It is the biggest vegan binding agent you can imagine. Wow. Now, here's the problem. You open your can of chickpeas. Let's say you use a cup. You need to freeze the aquafaba in an ice cube tray. It freezes beautifully. Now, here's the secret that's in the book. You have to heat it up. It has to be 
below boiling in order to use it for it to be activated in order for it to bind anything. So if you okay. just take it out of the freezer and thaw it, it won't work. So you take it out so of the freezer. Can, you put oh. it in the freezer, you thaw it, you take your cube out and then you, you just heat it and then you can use it. Oh. And it's, it's like tablespoon. I would use two tablespoons of aquafaba for one egg. Wow. And I made meringues with it. Now, I have to be honest, Jim didn't like them, but then he's a sugar junkie. But <laughs> everyone else thought they were terrific. It's good to see he hasn't changed. That's, that's <laughs> he, he always I liked the sugar. About, he liked the sugar of just about everything. He's like, where's the sweet part of this? And he's still skinny. Oh, really? Oh, my God. He was so skinny. So he never he never fattened up even with all he the food. He never did, and he and he's a good eater. I make him lunch every day. Is he a vegetarian? He was for the first few years, and then the kids came along. But my mother like fed my kids chicken noodle soup that she made, and that <laughs> she didn't. She never liked the fact I was a vegetarian. Well, you know, one of the one of the interesting things about I was kosher for a long time before I was vegetarian. Once you're vegetarian, you're kosher anyway. It doesn't really matter. But I was kosher and, and you know, people would just, you know, why are you doing that? Like, you don't really think that eating this is healthier than that. And I said, no, no, I don't think that. It's not like, oh, I can't eat a pig, but I can eat a cow. I mean, it's all ridiculous. But it was a discipline. It was a restraint. It meant I couldn't eat anything I laid my eyes on and I could give some things on this planet a break. And it was a way every day of reminding myself that I'm Jewish that I have to make a decision to do this. And in doing that, I'm saying I'm still in. So when I went for a meat fork or a milk fork, which we still have in the house, because we have the kids eating meat and stuff, uh, I would just go, oh, I have to make this conscious decision. And it made eating conscious at some level, you know, certainly not on the level of, of rigor that you know, real knowledge will give you. Like you, you understand food, and exactly how it all works together. And when it doesn't work together, what you have to do to optimize it. I don't have that knowledge, but I do have a, a sense that I don't, I'm not entitled to everything I see in front of me and that I should treat it with a certain kind of respect. So maybe that's a start. I don't know. Well, you know, I think everyone should become a recipe tester. Then they'll understand how you put a recipe together and what's involved when it comes to not just combining flavors, but look at the texture of what you're eating. And I also think we have to be mindful about how much we eat. Yes. Because a lot, a lot of people don't eat because they're hungry and a lot of people don't eat at all. A lot of times, you know, people are very, very busy. And so they either buy takeout or they're just absorbed in their head. And that's not healthy either. So the consciousness you have about what you eat also has to extend to your life. I, I know when I, I taught my cooking course at the big carrot, it was a five week. It was how to set up a natural foods kitchen. People would say, Oh, I'm so glad I ate well tonight. And I would tell them, it's just one night out of seven. You have to think about eating well all the time, especially if you're not well. Like the consciousness is there. You have to tap into it. And you know, it's not that people don't go out and it's not that at holidays people 
overeat or anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not about that. But, it's about everyday you life. To, you have to look at your life honestly. And if you're not going to commit to eating well, hire someone to cook your food five days a week. And then you know you're going to be getting good food. Or find find a community that you can dine with. I think that's what's really missing in life is uh, people eating well and sharing food. I know because of COVID, it's not possible either. But I really think there's a sense of community around food, and that needs that needs to be extended. People need to eat food together, thank the earth for the food that grew it, and try and take more responsibility for their lives. I like, I taught my kids to cook. I can't tell you the number of pots and pans that were ruined because they didn't pay attention and, <laughs> and things burnt, but you can't get mad about that because it's all part of the learning curve. And it's the same thing with, uh, people eating well, there's a big learning curve and people need to be encouraged, not discouraged. Right. Food community. So there's a story. The story is told um, in this case of I was working with someone who was a, 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 a synagogue I used to belong to in Toronto, the Nariver. And it was uh, somebody who went every Saturday. And I was doing a workshop on, on spirituality and how to create spiritual toolkit for yourself. And he got, you know, he took me aside at one point and he said, you know, Ralph, I have to tell you, when it comes to things like praying, it means nothing to me. Like, I, I do not resonate with that. I'm just standing there going, I like singing the songs. But I, <laughs> I, 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 I'm not, in, I'm not in, in, in conversation with any deity, believe me. And I said, but, but you're here every week. Like, you, you show up every week to synagogue. Why do you come? He goes, look, I'm not being glib. I come for kiddish. I come for the food after the service and not for, just for the food, which was vegetarian in our, in our place. It wasn't for that. Uh, of course, it's wonderful to have well-made food and all that. It's that I got to be with people that we all stood together with our plate in our hands and just talked. And I, I watched kids grow up and people get old. And that's why I was here for community. And the food was the glue at the end of the service that brought us all together on something where we could just enjoy ourselves and go back for seconds and, and do that. You know, it's like the Shabbat, you know, Friday night dinner with, with friends and they don't all have to be Jewish. Just bring people into your house and be potluck. If you want to see people invest in a meal, when they come with something, they're invested. It's the, instead of, well, what's to eat? It's like, you know, obviously there's some anxiety of like, are people going to like my dish? Do they eat my dish? And I try to sort of dispel that and go, th you know, you thank everyone for bringing the food. Of course. But it's a lovely thing that you that food is much more than just food. It's 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 a way of of connecting with people that there is no other way that is more profound in terms of you leapfrog over your intellect and you're just in your body eating food right together. It's a lovely thing. So the Fair Trade Ingredient Cookbook is available anywhere. Can I order it online? Yes, you can get it through Amazon. It's coming to Whole Foods. It's uh, going to be in Indigo. It's It just arrived like at the beginning of October. And so I, I have to uh, do like some a lot more media about it. And I got to learn how to do this Zoom on my own. Yeah, well, you know, unless your son is going to have to stay beside you within 12 feet for the rest of your life, I would say well, yes. Well, he's got a job. 
Oh my God! Starting well, in January. Well, okay, you've got till January then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Look at this one: jalapeno chocolate chili. Get out. Oh, yummy! Don't oh. you cook with chocolate? No, I've never you cooked can, with chocolate. You can grate it. Okay. It's fabulous. You add it at the end. That's and a Mexican it, thing, right? Chocolate and cooking. Yeah, it is. Well, it's it's also Asian. Oh, okay. Uh, and the thing is. You can choose whatever chili you like. I like the jalapeno because it's not too spicy because Jim doesn't like a lot of spice. Right. And, and, and chilies are available in most grocery stores now. The thing about chilies, you need to wear some gloves because they have volatile oils. And if you touch your lips or you touch your eyes, you'll be in pain. Oh, I did that. Yeah, it's no fun. But chilies add so much flavor without adding fat. And that's what we want. So instead of using a bottle, you use a chili, you know, for spice. And you can also, I also give people alternatives. You you could use a chili powder if you like. I mean, I like ancho a lot. And also, when you look at what spices you have at home, if they're older than six months, you should throw them all out because they've lost all their flavor. That's another thing about being a foodie is you have to keep on top of your ingredients. You need to label things so you know how long you've had them. Because the reason you bought them is for their flavor. So when they don't deliver any flavor, you go fenugreek. Oh, I'll never buy that again. There's no flavor. Well, it's your fault because it's longer than six months months pal i hear the cronish coming out (laughs) she's marching down the hall she's about to give me heck as they say i'm looking at your spice cupboard yeah very interesting because we do keep things like we use a lot of spices but mind you being moroccan uh, cumin you might as well put cumin on everything. I mean, it's ridiculous. Cumin. Yeah, but do you turmeric. use the seeds? Do you toast the seeds and then grind them? No. That, I, well, that adds a little more flavor. And I don't mean to be a food snob because I want to encourage people to cook as much as they well, can. Well, that's the thing. You don't want to make people go, my God, I'm doing it wrong. I'm doing it wrong. Okay, just get going. Right? Yeah, like, start. Don't be perfect. All right. All right. I'm saying goodbye to you now. I um tell jim uh, jim is her husband i went to school with jim we used to hang out in the basement on courtly boulevard where he that's lived. right with his lord of the rings poster yes and his drum kit which was like so cool you know he plays two saxophones and a flute wow he didn't do that when we were hanging out he just put on yeah, jethro no, I mean, and, and played drums. plays with bands he's really good wow uh, you know that... he plays my favorite song i could have danced all night <laughs> it was my mother and father's yeah, I'm kind of hoping his repertoire is a little bigger than that <laughs> if not I you know I get it he's trying to make his wife happy I get it um, <clears throat> thank you for the book the fair trade ingredient cookbook Nettie Cronish is there a website people can go to do you do yes, classes I online a website what is it called uh, Nettie Cronish Cronish C-R-O-N-I-S-H you got it and Nettie uh, I-E and not I-E. Y. Yeah, I'm named after my booby so her soul doesn't wander around heaven. No, it's down here giving people heaven. That's <laughs> <laughs> where it is. I know exactly where it is. I know where to find it. Um, thank you for the book. Take care of yourself. Okay, and come to Toronto and visit Jim. I will. And you. I can visit you too. And then yeah. I'll, I'll eat the jalapeno chili chocolate. Movie launch. 
Yeah. Yeah, baby. All right. The Fair Trade Ingredient Cookbook, nettycronish.ca or .com? .com. Dot com. Uh, do you do do you provide online cooking classes at all? Coming soon. Okay, good because I I'll take one of those. I'll take all right. All right. An aquafaba course. Yeah, I, <laughs> I'm going to walk around <laughs> saying that as if it's normal now. <laughs> I'm going to walk by my wife and go, "Do you know what the aquafaba is?" <laughs> She's going, "What? I've never heard." She's a good cook, so this will be fun. Uh, take care, and I'll see you soon. Okay. All right. Zagazut. Zagazut. Nettie Cronish. Uh, my guest, I'm not that kind of rabbi. If you want to support this podcast, uh, patreon.com slash NTKR. I have a book out now called I Thought He Was Dead. Check it out. Uh, people are saying nice things, which is really wonderful when you write a book to find out that people actually enjoy it. Uh, but it's a spiritual memoir, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. You take care of yourselves, and I'll see you soon on Not That Kind of Rabbi. Bye. Bye.